3: Welcome, one and all, to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. I just want to thank everyone who submitted short docs. We were inundated and were thrilled to dig in and start listening. You should all go listen, too. Find the entries at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And now that the deadline has closed for that competition, we've got a new one, our 2012 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition for the best audio documentaries in the world has begun. We're now accepting submissions. Go to thirdcoastfestival.org to find out more. Okay, that's it for now. Here's ReSound. From the Third Coast International Audio
4: Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
5: When I came into the dining room, I heard him say, here comes my date now. And
4: I thought, dear me, I was a kind of an old date. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and audio sparklers from around the world. The airwaves, the internet, we look all over, collect, curate, and play the best of what we hear each week on ReSound.
6: I do I come out here
4: and I sit in
6: the in the sun. Isn't this nice? Yeah. What a nice. View. And, w- and when you get out here, no interference,
4: nobody's around. There's not another soul. I love it. Before space travel, they were here. Before television, they were here. Before penicillin, World War I, and even the Wright brothers' first flight, they were here. They are the centenarians, born at the turn of the century, at a time when life expectancy was only 47 years. They just kept going, and going, and going. One thing, I think we uh,
7: deal with sex too early in life. You have plenty of time to have sex. Up to 95, anyway. In
4: 1999, when radio producer Nina Ellis set out on a project to chronicle the events of the 20th century through radio stories, she looked toward the only people who had lived through it all, the centenarians but she soon discovered that these witnesses to history weren't as interested in reliving the past as they were in living in the present, and the focus of her entire project changed.
1: Without trying very hard, I was finding people who were in exceptionally good shape with great memories and people who were still active at age 100. And so I sort of pulled back and said, wait a minute, something's going on here over and above what I had set out to do.
4: Instead of rehashing historical events, Nina asked the people she met, even those who likely only had a couple of years or months left to live, about their hopes and dreams for the future.
8: Well, I've got an income that I could give a woman, and uh, I've got property I can give her. I've got
4: a Cadillac. I've got a lot to offer a woman yet. Their profiles turned into a series called 100 Years of Stories, which originally aired on NPR and later filled a book called If I Live to Be 100. Today on ReSound, we'll hear six of the stories from the series and talk to Nina, who says documenting these centenarians changed her life. Before we talk about each story that we're going to play, I have to ask you a question. I think it would be impossible to do this series and delve into it like you have without thinking about yourself and comparing yourself to the people who've aged so successfully and saying to yourself, am I that kind of person? Do I have a (laughs) chance of living to be 100? You you must have been doing that the whole time.
1: Absolutely, the whole time, actually. As soon as I started meeting some people that were just amazing to me in their level of activity, It became very clearly for me an exercise in what do I want my life to be like if I live to be that old. And actually, the whole time I was doing this project when my grandmother was 99 years old. So I have reason to believe that I could get to that age.
4: And did you come away with um, any resolutions like I'm going to make sure and exercise more or take my calcium or... uh that you're going to actively work to try and make it so?
1: Yes, I did. And it made me, um, first of all, conscious that a lot of these people ended up the way they are because they did make careful choices and because they were conscious of where they were headed. Um, Maybe they didn't think they were going to be 100 years old, but they were conscious of keeping... um, a life for themselves that they enjoyed and that furthered their own interests. You know, they weren't just going down a stream and kind of, you know, letting life take them where they would. They had sort of focused. um, They were motivated and focused on things they wanted to have in their life. So um, it did make me realize that, you know, you, you can You have lots of choices, and you can make choices, and it's important to make those choices as you get older. You can't wait until you're 90 years old to make those choices. You know, you have to sort of get there gradually.
4: Here's the story of Helen and Bill Boardman.
1: I've always wanted to write a story called Love at 90 about what it feels like to be in love when you're really old, But for years, it was just an idea floating around in my head. Then in the spring, I got a call from a listener who said, you might want to meet my stepmother. She's 104. And when she married my dad, she was 97. I booked a flight to Chicago to meet Helen Boardman. We spent two days talking with me trying to figure out how one stays hopeful enough to fall in love at 90. Helen's answer lies in the kind of person she's always been. She was born in 1896 in a town called Hoopston, south of Chicago. Her father was an unusually gregarious farmer. Most every winter, he would move the whole family to Los Angeles, traveling for a week on the Santa Fe Railroad.
5: The thing I think that we were impressed with when we waked up and found orange blossoms everywhere, The fragrance of them, we couldn't believe that it was summer in California when it was cold and icy in Illinois. We had many lovely things happen to us there.
1: Many lovely things happened in Helen Boardman's life, as she tells it. Every chapter has a happy ending. She is especially proud of the large, warm family she was raised in, and of the education her parents provided.
5: I went to a school of speech. It was called Leland Powers School of the Spoken Word. And we were trained to read and impersonate the characters in a play.
1: Helen had talent. She played Joan of Arc to glowing reviews, but after graduation, she taught school for a year and then married her high school sweetheart, Curtis Boardman. It was what she wanted. She and Curtis were very close, and she was happy as a full-time mother. Every day, raising kids was exciting, she says, and she found a way to keep up her performing. When Curtis died, Helen was 73 years old. Did you think about the future? You were alone for the first time and living on your own for the first time. I guess I'm an optimist. I thought the best was ahead.
5: Like, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made. So I had made that provision mentally And I I was living in the home that my parents built the year I was born. But I didn't hesitate to leave it for something I've considered
1: better. And she describes the next 20 years as full of opportunities. She moved to Florida went back to school, became a book reviewer, traveled to Europe more than 15 times, and then at age 88, wanting to be closer to her children, she moved into an assisted living community called Friendship Village in Schaumburg, Illinois. She had two hip replacements but stayed active. I've enjoyed the pleasure of new hips, she says. Helen liked living alone, kept up her reading and performing and traveling, and at age 90 she even went whitewater rafting. Soon thereafter, she fell in love with a younger man. The first
5: time we dated, he was the chairman of a dinner that we had here. And when I came into the dining room, I heard him say, here comes my date now. And I thought, Dear me, I was a kind of an old date, (laughs) not dried up date.
1: Bill Boardman, coincidentally he has the same last name, also lived at Friendship Village. He had recently lost his wife and he was not happy alone. He had known Helen for a few years and they were so much alike, active, outgoing, and curious, that their 20-year age difference didn't seem important.
8: Before my children met Helen, they were a little startled, come to think of it, that I would marry somebody that much older than I. So I made sure that they met her. And when they did, that made all the difference in the world. They could see that this would be a good thing for both of
1: us. And so they got married, surrounded by their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. At 99, Helen wrote her memoirs and Bill did the proofreading and editing on his computer. Today, her vision is poor. She has macular degeneration, so Bill reads to her from the morning paper. They also perform together, doing monologues and plays and book reviews at the village and other senior centers. Bill still drives a car and takes care of logistics and a lot more.
5: I don't know what I would do.
1: Without him, he's that important
5: for the help that he gives me, even cutting my fingernails and toenails.
8: And she gets a whisker once in a while that needs yes. to be.
1: <laughs> I guess that comes with the territory, huh? I guess. Yes. No,
8: that's love. You do things like that for the person that you love.
1: I've always wondered: is love a different feeling when you're much older? Or does loving someone feel the same as when you're getting married at 20?
5: I feel that you're just really mature in every respect, in your thinking, especially. Uh, you don't expect the romance that you do when you're 20, it's l- real love and nothing to complicate it when you're our age.
1: Of course Helen Boardman could fall in love at 90, because for her everything is an opportunity. Getting older is an adventure. When I finally had to leave Helen, I realized she'd made me feel hopeful, which is not always the case when I say goodbye to centenarians. But happiness comes so easily to her.
5: I enjoy having his arms around me just as much as I did When I was 20, you never get tired of that. And you miss it when you don't have it.
4: That was Helen and Bill Boardman's story, part of the 100 Years of Stories series by Nina Ellis. Today on ReSound, we're listening to the stories of centenarians and talking with producer Nina Ellis. Very generally speaking, did you find common threads among the centenarians that you um, interviewed, or is that really just the wrong way to look at it because everybody obviously is such an individual?
1: As time went by, I really did start to notice kind of common Uh, traits among them. And I, I saw them as personality traits. One of them was that everybody has a passion for something larger than themselves. Sometimes it's their family, sometimes it's their church, sometimes it's just the block they live on. But they're dedicated, they're focused, and they are really giving of themselves to something. Secondly, they're resilient. They shed stress, they don't worry, you know, they get on with things. Third, optimistic. That's probably not very surprising. They see the glass half full, they're looking forward to something coming up in the future, many of them like planning vacations, looking forward to Christmas, you know, can't wait for the summer to come, that kind of thing. Uh, many of them were very direct, which was something that I really appreciated and grew to look forward to, especially the women. They would just tell you right to your face, you know, I don't like that outfit you have on or, you know, <laughs> something like It was just so refreshing and great um sociability is a very high um factor a lot of them very fun to be with you know kind of not exactly life of the party but easy to engage with good sense of humor um you know just fun easy easy to get to know kind of people which makes sense you know when you think about it that um if you're gonna thrive at a at an older age you have to be sort of nice, if not fun, to be around, because your mobility is limited, many people don't drive anymore, they're dependent on other other people to come to them, so, you know, it seems like, to me, like a survival factor. You, you have to be kind of pleasant, so people want to be with you, and that was very, very noticeable.
4: Here's the story of Ruth Ellis.
1: Ruth Ellis has no family left, no partner, and she never had children. But she's not lonely, and the years that we are most afraid of have been her happiest. If I tell you right away how that happened, you might not appreciate the struggles of her first 80 years. Ruth Charlotte Ellis was born and raised in Springfield, Illinois, where her father was the first African-American mail carrier. Her family was loving, but at school she was lonely. I didn't have any friends. Why, why didn't you have friends? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
7: I guess there weren't very many colored in that school. And I had classes that would, I'd be the only colored there. And I think I was a bachelor or something. And the teacher called on me for something and I'd tell her I didn't know. But I knew the answer, but I didn't want to get up before the class. One teacher slapped me because I was so stupid. <laughs> oh, Lady Powers. I told my daddy. So he came over to school and bawled her out. I didn't have too much of a childhood. My gym teacher, she's the only one who paid any particular attention to me. She took interest
1: in me. In high school, she had a secret crush on her gym teacher, and gradually Ruth began to realize this about herself. She was gay. She never tried to hide it, but she didn't talk with anyone about it either. Ruth graduated from high school, worked a number of jobs in Springfield, and then in the late 30s moved to Detroit for better pay. She learned about the larger gay world, and eventually found a partner, a woman named Babe. They bought a house together, and Ruth owned a small printing business. They didn't have much money, but they opened their home to young black gay men and lesbians who were not allowed in the white single-sex bars of Detroit.
7: They'd come to our house for just enjoyment. They'd bring a bottle, they'd play cards, we'd dance and play the piano. They'd be, some of them would be good piano players. Just had a place to enjoy themselves. One fellow come from the South. He didn't have any place to come. He stayed at our house. Different ones would come and stay at our house. till they find something
1: to do, then they're gone. After 35 years together, Ruth and Babe drifted apart. And so, at age 65, Ruth got an apartment in subsidized senior housing in downtown Detroit. And even though she had no family members living and no pension, her best years began. She joined senior citizens clubs and enjoyed bowling, pool, dancing, and for the first time in her life, traveling. And then at age 79, she took a self-defense course from a young woman she had a feeling was gay.
7: Yeah, I was curious. (laughs) I'd never seen a white lesbian, so I wrote a little note if I could get better acquainted with her. So she came over to see me.
1: And when the woman introduced Ruth to her circle of friends, everything changed. She was embraced by a community hungry for a role model. Ruth doesn't like to say she's experienced discrimination in her life, though she will say being black is harder than being gay. It's clear that much has been denied to her— a good education, high-paying jobs, and the freedom to socialize as she pleased. Ruth chose not to hide her homosexuality, though, And today, the women who surround her take hope and strength from that. Sarah Uli is one of these women. Ruth took me to visit Sarah, who says she deeply loves Ruth, has found her true grandmother, and wants to make her happy however she can.
9: I think at first, for, you know, five or ten years, the main thing I did was make sure that Ruth could get to an event if she wanted to go, if she wanted to go to the National Women's Music Festival, or just to a coffee house. We'd make sure somebody would pick her up and that she'd get to go. And we also work on trying to take care of Ruth's dreams. Like about, I don't know, ten years ago, somebody said there was a conference in California for black, gay, and lesbians, and Ruth said, well, I think I'd like to go to that. So we raised money, and she and a companion went to that conference. Then a couple years later, she said, you know, I'd like to have a (coughs) massage. Or, I'd like to go to Provincetown. This is like
1: where I went. This is like Ruth Ellis' Make-A-Wish Foundation. Exactly, (laughs) exactly.
9: And the circle of friends is so large now that there is almost nothing that she could think of that couldn't be made to happen.
1: Why did this happen to you, Ruth?
9: I don't know. Just out of the sky.
1: And now there's a documentary film called Living with Pride, Ruth Ellis at 100. So far, it's been shown at gatherings in more than 80 cities in the U.S. and overseas. And as a result, Ruth is alone only when she wants to be. She gets phone calls and visitors and invitations to appear before groups. I went with Ruth to one of these events at Michigan State University, where a classroom full of mostly 20-year-old students watched the film. Afterward, when Ruth was before them, ready for questions, there was silence. Later, many of them admitted they were afraid of older people, and none of them, it turns out, had talked with anyone aside from their grandparents, over 60 years old. They stared at Ruth, a messenger from another century.
7: Now don't be bashful. I'm just an ordinary person.
3: I would like to know... um... I think most of us in here are social workers, and I wondered what you would like us to know um, from your experience with social workers. What would you like us
7: to know? I would like for the young people to take more interest in some old person. There's a lot of old people that have lost their families. They don't have anyone. And I think if the young people would just pick out one person If they could go visit, take them to a show or to lunch, or something like that, I think they'd appreciate that very much. I had a friend that lived to be 100. Then she decided that she was tired, and she just stopped eating till she passed. So I don't want to get that tired.
1: As long as I can. <laughs> Ruth Ellis has gone from being a shy little girl with no friends to a wise elder, an inspiration. It took nearly a hundred years though and on some days she says she is tired of living. But at this moment, as all these young faces smile at her, Ruth is radiant. She practically inhales their energy and it makes her just a little bit bold.
3: What do you think about sex education in schools?
1: You got me there, honey.
7: You got me there. One thing, I think we uh, deal with sex too early in life. You have plenty of time to have sex. Up to 95 anyway. I can tell you that.
1: Ruth is still traveling and looking forward to her 101st birthday.
4: Ruth Ellis' story was produced by Nina Ellis no relation. Today on ReSound, we're listening to the stories of centenarians and talking with producer Nina Ellis.
1: Six months after I met Ruth, uh, she passed away, and she pretty much stopped eating. She had a heart condition. She went in the hospital. She said, I want to go home. I want to go home. They brought her home, and she died at home, and Uh, over the course of her dying, which was a week or so, she was never alone. They had a rotating uh, list of people who came and spent uh, 20, they were with her 24-7 and attended to every need. So here she was, somebody with no family of her own, no children of her own. Her own biological relatives had shunned her because of her sexual preference when she was Uh, a young adult. And, you know, she made a community for herself. She was also very outgoing. And uh, at the age of 100, spent a lot of time in Detroit going to senior centers to visit with the quote unquote, older folks, you know, she was um, (laughs) very focused on seniors and how we could help seniors. And she lived that dream. She brought young and old together. It was, um, it was a I went to her memorial service there were more than 300 people there it was it was uh uplifting it was very uplifting
4: this is a project that by its very nature is a project of loss because you you know so far we yeah. just can't live that long i mean yeah. already it's a long time so you yeah. kind of g- going into it with a a natural um sense of loss waiting for you
1: but You know, I really didn't think about that when I started and uh, the people were so fun to be with and they were very good at dealing with loss and they really weren't focused on it. You know, after all these years, you can imagine they had lost so many people. Many of them had outlived their own children. And most of them had outlived their spouses, although I did meet a couple who were both 100 years old, and that was pretty phenomenal. But most of them had spent the last 20 or 30 years dealing with the loss of most of the people that were close to them. So they were they were pretty good at dealing with it. Um, It was hard for me though. Um, I got close to them, I got close to their families. I went to a lot of their memorial services after they passed away. Um, I felt so lucky to have met them when they were in this kind of golden, glowing last few years of their lives because the truth is at that age they had a very rapid decline.
4: you're listening to resound from the third coast festival i'm gwen Maxide. Today we're listening to selections from 100 Years of Stories by Nina Ellis and talking to her about this remarkable centenarian population. Next up is an excerpt from Abe Goldstein's story, who well into his 10th decade was still going to his office every day.
1: I met Professor Goldstein at his office last winter during finals week. He arrived wearing a brown raincoat, a brown matching fedora, and a brown polyester suit. He has a full head of wavy white hair and clear, direct eyes. He was cordial but reserved as he greeted me, and I noted that his hands were very smooth. Silently, he went to a filing cabinet, lifted out a business law textbook, and sat down at his desk, Ready for his first tutoring appointment with a student named Anna.
10: You got lunch for me there?
1: <laughs> no, I'm sorry.
10: Uh, I'll wait till you bring it.
1: <laughs> In the book itself. What states, page open you talking about? Page, page 156. 156. 6? 56, yes.
10: There is no 156.
1: There must be. <laughs> yeah.
10: Now, what. Right here. Now, that's where a buyer places an order for a good to a manufacturer. He agrees to buy the entire output that A manufactures in his factory.
2: Mm-hmm.
10: Now, the quantity isn't specified. We don't know what it's going to be. But we do know by a simply lapse of time how much the output is. So, therefore, that's a good contract.
1: Professor Goldstein is patient and thorough. They talk for an hour about a number of subjects, and he acts as if there's nothing in the world he'd rather be doing.
10: you got to remember that. Okay. Okay.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
10: Good luck on the exam.
1: Thank
10: you. You want me to take the exam for you?
1: Oh, I would love that.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> I would do anything. <laughs>
4: That was an excerpt from Abraham Goldstein's profile, produced by Nina Ellis for NPR in the year 2000.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
4: Today on Resound, we're listening to the stories of centenarians and talking with producer Nina Ellis. Abraham Goldstein, the man who never stopped. <laughs> he never stopped teaching.
1: He was still teaching law when I met him. He'd been practicing law since the 20s, the 1920s, and he claimed to not have any interest in the past. He didn't want to talk to me about the past. I'd asked him a million questions, you know, what was it like in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and he just kept saying, you know, I don't live in the past. He was a little grumpy with me because um, I was kind of probing and asking him all these questions which he didn't want to answer and i was kind of um anxious about it because he he didn't really want to engage with me um but what i was lucky enough to experience was his relationship with his students. I just plopped myself down in his office as he tutored law students all day. Every hour, another one would come in, and it was like a light was turned on inside of him when the students would come in. He was funny, and he told jokes, and he flirted with the young women, and uh, you know, he was like another person when he was with these young people. So it was very easy for me to see where his motivation came from you know what was keeping him going all these years it was his relationship with his students he didn't uh, another one he didn't he never married he had no children he would go home at night and uh, what he did was read law briefs in order to keep his colleagues at the law school up to date on <laughs> new york law I mean, <laughs> Um, And he would come in every day with his briefcase and his little hat on and his trench coat, and he would plop himself down in his seat and just see students hour after hour after hour. It was really great to see.
4: Here's the story of R.L. Stamper.
1: R.L. Stamper is a cowboy and a preacher. He came to Indian territory 95 years ago and still lives on the same land his daddy bought east of Tulsa. Today, it's the Stamper Quarter Horse Ranch. R.L. lives on the property, alone in his own rambling house. A woman comes in the morning to cook and clean and help out. In his den, there's a whole wall covered with sparkling horse trophies. But today, the quarter-horse business is run by his son and grandson, who both live just steps away in their own homes. R.L. is in pretty good shape physically, though he uses an electric scooter to get around. He's sharp and funny and a tireless storyteller. He was born in 1896, one of 22 children raised by poor parents. They lived in eastern Kentucky where he says there was lots of feuding and robbery and killing which today he understands.
8: I think the robbers are good moral men, maybe as good as a, or better than the common of men today. They didn't rob the poor, I remember, and uh, my daddy wouldn't know how to lie. He's a good, honest, hard-working man, and uh He got into some trouble, however.
1: R.L. calls the trouble shootin' scrapes. His father killed at least one man, beat him to the draw, and shot him in the heart. He didn't go to jail, but after that, he wasn't safe. So he left Kentucky and went out west to start over, planning to bring the family out later. But he did bring nine-year-old R.L. with him. When they got as far as Tulsa, they caught a freight train, waited for the right moment, and jumped off. Daddy went first.
8: He got down the step. When he stepped off, just rolled down through there, end over appetite, dust a fly. I climbed down the step, just about four feet to the ground. First place hit top of my head, I rolled down there. Just a kid, you see. Wasn't that a deal?
1: <laughs> R.L.'s father left him alone in a hotel for a week while he bought some cheap land. Then they cleared it with axes and cross cut saws and built a house. The rest of the family came out in the spring of nineteen oh six. When you first came to this area, who lived around here? What was it like?
8: Nobody, nobody but the Indians. No white people told here when we come here.
1: Really? And
8: I had to learn to talk Cherokee before I could spark. Is that right? Oh see you to do dugea.
1: What does that mean?
8: <laughs> Showing don't <up> pretty girl. <laughs> Now, they had a stomp ground up here, a mile from here. What's that? Where they s- danced around. Dance. Yeah, they had a pole that danced around. Of course, I didn't know what they were saying. He, yo, wah, he, he. He, yo, wah, he, Do, you wah, he, I didn't know what they were saying. They might have been celebrating burning a white man. I don't know. <laughs> but I there wasn't nothing else to do, you see.
1: But you went to see that?
8: Oh, yeah. I'd go to that right you know. I got along good with the Indians, real good.
1: In the 95 years that R.L. Stamper has lived in Oklahoma, he's raised cattle, broken horses, slaughtered hogs, and made a little moonshine on the side. He worked in the oil fields and the mines. He was a house mover. Twice he nearly died of tetanus, and once he froze his ears while riding horseback all night to see a girl. He married a Cherokee woman, and he met the outlaws Bonnie and Clyde and Pretty Boy Floyd, who used to hide out a mile from here in caves. It's a hot afternoon in May as we talk in the living room of R.L.'s ranch house. We sit close so his weak eyes can see my face. He's all sprawling legs in his scooter leaning down at me till the brim of his cowboy hat nearly touches my forehead. His aqua velva aftershave fills my head. I get carried away by the stories, and until this moment, I forget that R.L. is a preacher. I can't imagine a child born today who lives a 100 years. Will they see the changes that you have seen?
8: No, no I, I, don't, I don't think time will last. So I'll tell you why. We're at the end time. We are. And the next message I preach it may be the last that they'll hear.
1: So you don't think this world is going to last another hundred
3: years?
8: Oh, Lord, I don't think it'll last another year. I didn't really think that I'd see another birthday. No, no, I don't. It can't. Biblically speaking, it can't. And right now, I'm talking to you. Who's hearing some of the last words of this age? When you leave here, you may not get back to Tulsa. the Lords are coming without any doubt. Maybe we get off subject a little.
1: Well, that woke me up. I'd heard that R. L. Stamper preached revivals all over the West in schoolhouses, under tents, on river banks. but I was not prepared for his fervor and the graphic, visceral way he describes his beliefs. The devil, he says, is sneaky, like a cat who slips in and lowers the hammer on you. It turns out that R.L. Stamper is on an urgent mission to save souls. He wants to travel and preach, but he's got no one to take him, and he's grieving the loss of his third wife, who died last year. When I ask him what it's like to be a 100 years old, his answer is a desperate, agitated plea for help finishing his life work.
8: I want to go, and that's the worst trouble I have, you see. No conveyance Nobody take me. For that reason, I need a companion, real bad, and one I'd have probably wouldn't help me. But I've got income that I could give a woman fifty dollars a day, and uh, I've got property. I give her. I've got a Cadillac with $15,000, $20,000. I've got a lot to offer a woman yet. But I sit here, and it's real boresome. If you didn't have a Lord, you'd crack up, I think. My family's a comfort. But still, that's not a companion. I get despondent. I just go pray. Because there's no use to worry when you can pray. And that's what keeps me alive. Would that answer your question?
1: Before I left the ranch, R.L. prayed for me. His hands are scarred and crumpled. He said, Lord, I know that death will be at arm's length for her as she drives her little car back to Tulsa, which made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. But as I drove west through fresh spring hills, I found myself wondering what it would be like to accept the offer, move to the Stamper Quarter Horse Ranch in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, and take up driving R.L. Stamper around the country in his sun-bleached Cadillac so he could preach. It's worth some thought, because soon his kind will be gone from this world, and without a doubt, it would never, ever be boresome.
4: Centenarian Roy Larkin Stamper, a selection from the 100 Years of Stories series from NPR, produced by Nina Ellis.
1: After that radio story went on the air, he got letters from older women all around the country, um, and one woman from Louisiana ended up going to visit him, and they got married a few months later. <laughs> he was a hundred and three, and she was, was her she? she was in her eighties.
4: Robbing and, the cradle, uh,
1: robbing the cradle, and the families were needless to say, pretty shocked. Uh,
4: She went and moved in with him. Did she get the land and the car and everything else?
1: (laughs) No, she did (laughs) did not. And, you know, she said right up front, I'm not interested in his property. I don't want his money. You know, this is a man. I know he's going to make a good husband for me, and I just want to spend some time with him. And that's what she did. The families were pretty nervous about it, especially his family, you know, because he He had a big ranch, and they had a lot of property and a lot of cattle and a lot of horses. And, um, you know, his son and grandsons were pretty nervous about it, but it all worked out. How long were they
4: uh, married?
1: I think they were married about a year, maybe not even a year. And he passed, Mm. and she ended up going back to her family in Louisiana. But, you know, the time they were together... Who's to say that they shouldn't have been married? You know, they had a great time. They were both um, great companions. They, uh, she was able to enable him to get out more because she um, was very sociable, very fun loving. They were unafraid. They were unafraid.
4: You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxei. Today, we're showcasing the stories of centenarians and talking with Nina Ellis, producer of the NPR series 100 Years of Stories. Here's the story of Marion Cowan.
1: Last month in San Francisco, I met 101-year-old Marion Cowan. I'd seen a newspaper article about him. The headline said, Gilded Century Studded with Stars. He had fabulous stories about his career on Broadway and in Hollywood. In a photo, he was sitting at the piano and laughing. Mr. Cowan looked like a lot of fun, so I went to see him. He was sweet and eager to talk. He told me stories about the 1906 earthquake and about being a stowaway on a ship to New York in 1920, where he worked with a famous playwright and director named David Belasco. And what kind of um, productions were to be found at the Belasco Theater when you got there? What kind of shows were they?
2: Oh, I'd have to do a lot of thinking. Uh, There were the regular Broadway plays that were put
1: on every year, but that was a long time ago. Did you have favorite stars that you liked working with better than others?
2: Well, I knew some of them very well, like Clark Gable and...
1: Oh, I remember the woman who
2: was very famous. She lived down at, uh, off the coast of South America. Claudette Colbert.
1: Soon after I arrived, I realized that I'd come too late to hear Marion Cowan's stories. He repeated himself a lot, and he couldn't remember many things from his past.
2: I'm sorry. You have to dig so deep to forget anything. That's okay. When do you go back?
1: Uh, probably tomorrow morning. Oh, so soon. He asked me when I was leaving many times, and after a while I took it as his polite way of suggesting I should go. His energy seemed to be fading and flickering. Marion Cowan lives alone. He's never married and he's outlived his relatives. Health care workers come every day, and some loving and loyal friends visit as often as they can, but mostly he's alone. I'm pretty isolated, he says. I live like a clam. Before I left, his 26-year-old cat named Soho jumped up on the bed and for a moment he brightened. He's a great guy.
2: He takes a great interest in everything that goes on. He seems to have an idea he ought to take care of me to an extent, I guess. He's pretty smart, but he thinks he's got a proprietary interest in me.
1: You belong to him, huh? Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah. When do you leave? Tomorrow. Oh, so soon. Yeah. Marion Cowan still has some good days, his friends tell me, but he seems to be drifting uneasily back and forth from this world to some other place, not quite ready or able to leave.
4: Marion Cowan's story was produced by Nina Ellis.
1: Marion Cowan was um, uh, difficult for me. He was the one person I met who was struggling when I got to him. I thought he was close to death. He lived another year or so after I met him, um, but it, was, uh, it shook me up because he was the only one I met who was like that. And you know, for me it was a little it was a little wake-up call because I hadn't thought about these people in that stage of their lives because all of them had been so vibrant and energetic and and he was not. So, um, you know, it was um it was a little splash of cold water on my face when I met Marion.
4: Yeah, but we feel like we we should include him for that reason, actually. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I wanted him You know, I wanted to tell his story, too.
4: Here's the story of Anna Wilmot.
1: Anna Wilmot lives alone in a small wooden house on a lake near Westfield. She's small and fair. Her eyes are blue-blue, and her hair is now red, Inside the house, as she shows me around, her movements are quick, though she often refers to her poor old legs. Here's her daily routine. She gets up early, eats a big breakfast, does some stretching, and then settles down in her favorite chair. Anna is a reader, romance novels and mysteries mostly. There's a deep silence in her house. She doesn't care for the radio or television. Around noon, Meals on Wheels arrives
6: my meal. It's hot. You want to eat it? Not now. (laughs) Well, maybe you'll have it later. Maybe. What kind of a sandwich? Looks like ham and cheese, is it? Yep. Want to take this with you? Nah. Why? No, I don't
1: want to eat all your food. I got loads
6: of it. Take it with you.
1: (laughs) Okay. In the afternoon, Anna reads some more, answers the phone, which rings a lot, or gets out of the house altogether. Her friends and neighbors of all ages take her grocery shopping, invite her to birthday parties, bring their kids by to say hello. She says she's able to do everything she wants to do. Sometimes she drives her car. It's a well-traveled Dodge she calls her jalopy. And when the weather's warm, she goes out on the lake in her rowboat. She proudly shows me her bicep. On this day, Anna and I talk and laugh all afternoon. She finally convinces me to eat her lunch, and then tells me about growing up in a large family. She played basketball and taught swimming. We were outdoor kids, she says. Anna described her marriage, the deep fear they felt during the Depression, and how her son wrote her every day during his service in World War II. She still has all the letters. Anna is cheerful and funny, but as she talks, what she misses most in her life creeps in her two best friends, her husband and her younger brother, Louie. As a
6: teenager, my brother and I used to go to dances, and my brother was very protective of me. He'd look the feller over, and if he didn't like his looks, he says, you can't go with him. I said, why not? He says, I don't like the way he looks. So he'd, he'd watch over me. And remember, he was a year and a half younger, but I, I listened to him. And uh, when he died, he was 93, and uh, quite a healthy man. We were very, very close.
1: What was your husband's name? <clears throat> Frederick. Frederick. Were you, you were a teenager when you met
6: your husband-to-be? No, not exactly. I must have been about 20 and uh, he had, he was in the uh, first World War. I went with him for a couple of years, and then we were married. Then I had the the one son, Frederick, who lives in California now, and he's uh, I call him my baby. He's seventy five years old.
1: <laughs> Anna has outlived everyone in her family but her son. This has been hard, she says. And losing her husband was just terrible.
6: It was like my right hand being torn off of me because I was with him for 50 years. But I knew I had to calm down because I was left alone. And finally, finally, I got a hold of myself. At that particular time, I was ready to sell the house and move. I don't know where I was going to move, but I didn't. I just didn't want to stay here. I suppose the memories, uh, everything. But I had no idea uh, what I wanted to do. I was too confused, too upset. But as I say, I calmed down, so uh, I uh, didn't have to make a decision.
1: Yeah, and you've been alone now for 30 years. Yeah. It's a long time. It
6: is a long time. But I uh, had to go on. I was alone. I had to take care of myself. And I knew very well that I had to be healthy and not get sick because there was nobody here to take care of me. And uh, I just made it, thank goodness. (laughs) I have to laugh at this one. A a few years later, quite a few, there was a few men folks out out here that thought they had an eye for me, but nothing doing. I had the best, (laughs) and I left the rest stay where they were. Somebody wanted to marry you? Oh, I don't know whether that, but they wanted my company, (laughs) so who knows. But I didn't give it a chance. Why not? I I just said I had the best. I didn't want the rest.
1: (laughs) Anna's son, Frederick, is retired now and lives near his own children and grandchildren. But he calls his mother often and every summer comes to visit and stays here on the lake in the house where he grew up. I can't complain, Anna says. He's a good son.
6: My son is after me all the time to give up my home here and move out there with with uh, them. But I don't want to go. I like my home here. I'm happy. And I've made loads of friends. And uh, I feel secure. And if I went out there, I know I'd love to be with my son and daughter-in-law, but uh, not as much as I want to remain here. And I certainly will as long as I can.
1: In the late afternoon, Anna takes me outside. We collect the mail and then go around back to look at the lake. Her husband built this house, and her family had a cabin nearby when she was growing up, so this is her lake. No person in her life has lasted as long. Sometimes if it's warm and foggy, she surrenders all her clothes and swims in this water she has known for a hundred years. She says she's not lonesome living here.
6: And what I do, I come out here, and I sit in the the sun. Isn't this nice? Yeah.
1: What a nice view. And
6: when you get out here, no interference, nobody's around. There's not another soul. I love it. I don't want to die. I want to stay here. (laughs) I'm going to be cremated. I want them to throw my ashes in the pond, but I'm warning everybody, don't eat the fish. They might be eating me. (laughs) True.
1: (laughs) Believe me? Anna Wilmot, looking forward to her 103rd birthday.
4: Anna Wilmot's profile was produced by Nina Ellis for the NPR series, 100 Years of Stories. Today on ReSound, we're listening to the stories of centenarians and talking with producer Nina Ellis.
1: Anna Wilmot lived to be 111. And eventually went to live with her son in the Philippines, and I had a phone conversation with her on her 111th birthday, but she passed away shortly after that, and I'm not even sure she knew who I was when I talked to her on the phone. Most of them have passed away. There is one woman that's still alive. Her name is Louisiana Hines. To my knowledge, she's still alive. She was still alive a few months ago. She lives in Detroit. She's 111 years old and, as far as I know, still living in her own home.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, which, in, in which story did you find the most hope? There was some kind of hope
1: in in every one of their stories. Helen and Bill Boardman, they got married. She was 100 years old. I mean, that's hopeful. Uh, Same thing with Roy Stamper. Uh, Ruth Ellis found this community of people when she was... Quite old and and had a marvelous last twenty years of her life. Abe Goldstein was still working. Um, you know, for those of us who love what we do, uh, that was very hopeful situation. Anna still rowing her boat. You know, there were many stories of hope in all of these people. Um, as I said, they were optimistic. For somebody like me who's always been kind of an optimist, um, it was it was um, validating. You know to know that that approach to life can uh,
4: sustain you, Nina. Next time you're in Chicago, um, there is a woman uh, in my community. I don't know who she is, but you cannot live in my community without seeing her. She's probably about three and a half feet tall by now. She's just, <laughs> you know, she's like Shrinking. shrunk down to nothing. She's got, she's totally hunched over. And she rides her bike, her oh. two-wheel bike, oh. I don't know how old she is, everywhere oh. in all weather. You know, one of the
1: great um, rewards for me in writing this book or doing this radio series is is um, that people want to tell me about people they know. You know, it keeps coming back to me is what I'm trying to say. And that's uh, one of the ongoing rewards of a project like this is just hearing other people's stories. As much as I love hearing those stories, though, I want to say, you need to meet that person. <laughs> you need to stop that person and get to know them and just say hello and say, hey, I see you all the time. And I could guarantee you she's going to tell you something that's going to change you. Yeah. You know, she's going to say something that will totally alter your reality. It'll shift what you think about being old. Um, what you assume about being old, um,
4: somehow, somehow it will. That was Nina Ellis, talking with us about her radio series, 100 Years of Stories. To find out more about the series, or about her book, If I Live to Be 100, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
5: Roll along with me, the best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made.
4: ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agudino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact Contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
3: You've been listening to the Third Coast podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.